Amen. Good morning. You guys be seated. Thank you. It is a good morning. It's so good to see you here this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, first of all, I'm thankful that you're here. And if uh, it took a minute to find you a seat, thank you for bearing with us. Uh, we were just overjoyed that you're here and, uh, and glad to fill up the room. We've got an exciting day with uh, baptisms later on in the service. I know many of you are family members visiting uh, for that. But I want to say from our family to yours, if you don't have a church home, uh, we'd love to have you. Um, hopefully you would uh, find this a welcoming place to grow and learn about Jesus and allow him to work in your life in some uh, ways that are uh, not only beneficial for this life, but the life to come. So uh, welcome. Glad you're here. We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 in a moment. So if you've got a Bible, a phone, a tablet, something you want to use to follow along, uh, go ahead and, and get that out and turn there. If you want a Bible and don't have one, the seats around you and your seat, we place uh, black hardback Bibles. Those are there for you if you want to follow along. Um, as always, um, we want you to, uh, to hear from God this morning, not me. And so the way we do that is we open his word and we read it. And so uh, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 8 in just a moment. Uh, a couple things just to get started. One, um, church family, uh, just continue praying for our building research and development team. Um, as you can see, we're, we're looking for more space and we're ready to build here uh, in the near future. And so for the last 18 months, we have a team of people who've been researching the growth in this area and looking at the potential for our campus and interviewing architects and all that behind the scenes things. And so um, they're working right now to try to make a decision on an architect. If you would just pray for our building and research team, even if you don't know them by name, just pray for that team. Uh, they would welcome and covet your prayers. Um, it's, been a, it's been an exciting summer so far. We've had uh, a team go to the Philippines. We've had a, a group of students go to youth camp. Uh, we had VBS a week and a half ago. We've got kids camp on the horizon. And, and you guys as a church family have showed up so big this summer. I am so blessed to call this church my home. Uh, starting with the Philippines trip, it was super expensive to get the team of 11 uh, to the Philippines. And you showed up big and helped um, give sacrificially to get the team there. Then youth camp was right behind that. We had 12 students who needed scholarships, and you guys stepped up and sent 12 students paid in full to youth camp. Uh, of course, many of you served in VBS. And then kids camp coming up, I've been told as of this morning, all the kids who need scholarships for kids camp are all taken care of already. So I'm just here to say thank you. Thank you for giving sacrificially, for investing in the kingdom. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to see the fruit that comes when we invest in eternal things. So um, so all that to say, thank you, welcome, glad you're here. So Hebrews 8 is where we're going to be. A little bit of background just to give us some bearings on getting started this morning. We're going to be talking about covenants and specifically the covenant that God makes with us. And so to do that, just some, some, some helpful things that, that will help you kind of think about what it means to be in a covenant. Um, some modern day versions would be like the idea of being uh, in a contract, um, the idea of being committed, the idea of making promises. But that's just the scratching the surface of what it means to be in a covenant. See, we as a culture, wholesale, are an easy come, easy go culture. Easy in, easy out. We've got loopholes. We've got ways to get out if we overcommit. Things like, you know, some of you have had to file bankruptcy, and so you started off committed but weren't able for whatever reason, lost a job, um, things hit that you didn't expect, weren't able to fulfill that commitment, so bankruptcy was an option to get out. Um, others maybe, you know, walked away from debt. Many of us just relationally have made promises and received promises that in the end didn't amount to much. I'm always real hesitant to promise things to my boys. Parents, can you relate to that? They always want me to promise, right? And so at most I promise to try, right? But because why? Because why? I'm prone to not keep it. Things that I can't foresee, even some things I can foresee, I'm prone to not keep my commitments. 
So when it comes to covenants, though, we've got something much more significant going on, especially when God gets involved and makes covenants with us. And so just to give you some bearings, one of the great things about the book of Hebrews, it's in the New Testament, but it explains so much of the Old Testament and the full story of the Bible. And so if you think about your Bible, starting in the Old Testament, ending in the New Testament, here's some ways to think about it. Old Testament, Old Covenant. When you hear the word covenant, think of promise, the promises that God makes. Old Testament, Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. Okay, One way to think about it. When you look at the Old Testament just on its own, you could even see multiple promises within the Old Testament. So some would view the Old Testament and see five primary promises or covenants that God made. Starting with Adam then with Noah, then with Abraham, then with Moses, then with David. There's some who would see the Old Testament and see those five promises stitched together with a common thread. But then when we get to the New Testament, the new promise, what we get is something far more excellent than anything promised in the Old Testament. And that's where we're going today in Hebrews chapter 8. So we've been in this series going through the book of Hebrews, and we'll finish it in a few weeks, and we're starting Revelation. So we've got a few more weeks to finish out Hebrews, and then we'll spend the fall in Revelation looking at um, the things of the end times, the things that are far more excellent. But today what we're looking at is this idea of covenant from Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read this chapter, and then we'll start talking about it. So beginning in verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he, speaking of our high priest, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better what? promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. Now we're going to stop there and go back to verse 1 and move forward, okay? And then we'll finish out the chapter together. So just in some understanding, verses 1 and 2, the author says, now the point in what we are saying is this. So, so far in the book of Hebrews, the first seven chapters, we've seen this dramatic theme that Jesus is better. So chapter 1 starts, Jesus is better than anything in creation. Anything God has created, Jesus is better. Matter of fact, he's better than the angels. We continued moving through the chapters of Hebrews. We saw that not only is he better than the angels, he's better than any other priest found here on earth. He's a better priest. And in Jesus, when we trust him, when we believe in him, when we place everything we are in his hands, we find a better source of rest and peace. We find a better source of joy We find a more secure identity and overall just more secure in life. Because why? Jesus is better than anything here on earth that would attempt to offer these things to us. And so the author is saying now, the point of saying all of that is to say, 
This one who we have, verses 1 and 2, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So in contrast to earthly priests who sit in the temple, right, who sit in the big ornate chairs that look like thrones, we walk in, we're filled with awe. Oh, whoa, this must be an important person. In contrast to that, Jesus doesn't sit in temples made by human hands. He sits at the right hand of majesty. He's better. He's a minister, verse 2, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Now, what's going to happen in the next few verses, we're going to see a contrast between Jesus as our high priest versus the priests here on earth, the sacrifices that are offered versus the sacrifice he offers, and ultimately we're going to see a better covenant here promised and provided through Jesus. Verse 3. Now speaking about priests here on earth, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. It's one of the primary roles of a priest. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4, now if he, being Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Let me just unpack that for you. So to be a priest here on earth, according to Hebrew law, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, descendant from Aaron, the original high priest. And so what the author is saying is that don't think of Jesus in those terms. He's not a descendant of Aaron. That's not why we call him a priest. He's different than those priests. He's better than those who are set apart according to the Levitical law. Verse 5, they serve, now talking about all the priests here on earth, so like, it's hard to, to understand this, but the author is covering thousands of years of human history here. Thousands of years of Hebrew culture, history, worship, sacrifices, offerings to the Lord. Look at what he says. All of those sacrifices, all of them, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, so understand this, Moses was invited up on the hill to God's presence to hear directly from the Lord. The people stayed down in the valley, right? The people stayed disconnected. They needed a mediator. They needed somebody to tell them what God said. So the, this is a reference here. Those things here on earth serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything. So think of it like this. When you get down in the valleys, you make everything down there according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So that everything here on earth, whether it's the tabernacle, the sanctuary, these symbolic things, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the table for the bread, all these Hebrew items of worship, they're not the real deal. They're just reflections of the real deal. Even Jerusalem itself is just a reflection, a shadow of a better Jerusalem. We'll get there in a few months when we get to the end of Revelation, but a new, better Jerusalem actually descends, the real one. And so everything Moses saw, these heavenly realities up on the mountain, he was to come down and lead the people to set up the reflections here on earth. This includes the law. It includes everything that God did through Moses. Now, it's interesting because he even, God even says this to Moses, and a lot of them missed it in the Old Testament. In Exodus 25, after God had given Moses instructions on the sanctuary and the Ark of the Covenant and the table for the bread and the golden lampstand, lampstand he actually, this is a quote from there, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So even in the Old Testament, God was saying, Moses, I showed you the real deal. Go down there and, and, and set up reflections, set up shadows. 
of what you've seen up here on the mountain. And so the book of Hebrews is going to say to us a couple of times, everything in your Old Testament is just set up to reflect a greater reality. This is one way I think about the Old Testament. As you start in Genesis and start reading towards the Gospels, it's almost like an echo going backwards. You know how an echo works, right? The original source is loud, and then it echo, echo, echo. And so what happens is you begin reading in Genesis 1. All the way in Genesis 3, the beginning of your Bible, you begin to hear a faint echo of the coming promises of God in Jesus. The Bible says these are shadows, reflections of the things to come. Look at verse 6, Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, as it is right now, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So something about what Jesus offers is so much better than the old covenant, right? Since it is enacted on what? Better promises. Now, one of the temptations in Christianity is to look at the Old Testament and think of it as obsolete, not needed, right? Less than valuable, not inerrant. Somebody must have made a mistake somewhere along the way. In reading verses like that, right, we're tempted to think that. So then why even read the Old Testament? Let's just go straight to the good promises. Not understanding that the the Old Testament is the backdrop that helps us fully realize and appreciate what we're promised in the new. And so now that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the distinctions between the two. So, like I said, when you think about your Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, you've got five primary promises. Some will see six or seven promises there that God makes. And some people will see them as distinct, and some see them as really the, the, growing, uh, the, the growing promise of the gospel coming and a thread stitching them all together. So here's some examples. So Adam, right? Genesis 2, beginning of the Bible. God makes a covenant with Adam, right? He says, Adam, look around you. See all this stuff? It's beautiful, isn't it? You're free to eat from every tree you can see. It's all yours, right? Remember what he said to Adam? This is uh, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and what? Keep it. Not just managing it, but keeping this covenant agreement that God made with Adam. And what was the agreement fully? Eat eat of anything you see except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. evil. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. So God enacted a covenant with Adam. What happened? Adam broke it. Just one chapter later, Adam breaks it. After Adam, we get Noah. At this point in time, the way God describes the earth is that the intentions and the heart of man are all the time evil everywhere. And so what does God do? He takes a remnant. He takes Noah and his immediate family and some animals, puts them on a boat, floods the earth, and destroys so much of what was corrupt. And what does he say to to Noah after the flood resides? I'm making a covenant with you, Noah. I will never again destroy the earth this way. And he marks the sky with a rainbow as a mark of what? The covenant he made with Noah. And then just a few chapters later, we get to Genesis 12, Abraham. God begins his relationship with Abraham with a promise. Abraham, get ready to pack your stuff. I'm going to call you to leave your father's household, your father's land, all that you're familiar with, to come go with me to the land that I will show you. Then he engages in two promises. He says, I'll turn your family into a great nation. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In you, all families in the earth, all ethnicities will be blessed through what I do through you, Abraham. And God enacts a promise, a covenant. Then what happens? Abraham has a child, and that child has a child. And a few generations later, Abraham's done. He dies of old age. 
And his family goes on to grow into a nation. The book of Exodus begins with this family that has grown into a nation and now bound in slavery in Egypt. And so the book of Exodus begins with God's rescue of the descendants of Abraham, this great nation that God said he was going to build. And he rescues the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, out of slavery under the leadership of Moses. And when they're out in the wilderness, God invites Moses up on the mountain and he enacts covenant with Moses. Obey, Moses. Obey my commandments and you will be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. And then from there, after wandering in the wilderness for a number of years, they finally make it to the promised land and set up Jerusalem. Remember, the the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly temple. Now on the throne is a man named David. In 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David and said, David, after you, I'm going to raise up a descendant of yours. And he's going to be a king who leads a kingdom Not for a generation, but forever. What a big promise. David, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants as a king and a kingdom to live forever. And so we get these five really big promises from God to his people. It's interesting how your New Testament starts. If you start in Matthew chapter 1, you're going to get a lineage. And it's really boring if you don't know about all those covenants. But ultimately what Matthew is saying to us, let me introduce you to Jesus. He's the one all these covenants were about. He's a descendant of David. He came came from the people of Israel who Moses led, and ultimately he is a son of Abraham. This is the one God was promising. He's here. Now it's interesting if you go back and look at all these covenants and you stitch them together, you're going to see some common themes. Here's the primary theme you're going to see. So if you go back to Exodus 19, this is a chapter before the Ten Commandments, okay? So pretty big moment in human history. A chapter before the Ten Commandments, here's what God says to Moses to say to the people. This is Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. We have this up there yet? Look at this. What's the word? Obey. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's what he said to Adam, right? Keep my covenant. If you obey and you will keep, you shall be treasured, my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Obey, and I will bless. And that's the theme, right, of all those covenants, Adam and Noah and Abraham Moses and David, obey and I will bless, disobey and I will curse. Now, that's the old covenant, the old promise. Now, God is both just, merciful, and loving if he only just keeps the old promise and never makes a new one. Right? I mean, he made a deal with us. He's the potter, we're the clay. I created you, I set you up in Edom. In Eden, just don't eat from this one tree. I'm thinking to myself, Well, I could do that, right? That's the only thing, right? But what? I know the the truth. My heart is prone to wonder. My heart is prone to rebel against God. My heart is prone to say, I know better than you. Just like in Genesis 3, I'm prone to say, "Ah, God won't kill me if I eat from that. And so while I think if that's the only rule, I could do that. Come on. I know deep inside of my heart of hearts that just like Adam, I would take a knee, I would test God, and I would rebel. The heart of the old covenant was obey, and you will be blessed. Now, there's an issue, right? 
If there's never any other promise made, what? None of us qualifies. Right? Who among us can qualify? Who among us has no sin in your life? Stand up and throw the first stone, right? That's what Jesus said. I was thinking about this this last week. Um, I, was, uh, I had a chance to fly uh, this last week, and almost every time I fly, when we get to the, to the 30,000-foot mark, there's this brief moment of reality that, that, that washes over me, and then I quickly dismiss it. And the brief reality is I look out the window, and I just for a moment realize that I am 30,000 feet in the air, and apart from this airplane, I'm toast. I look out the window, I see clouds, I see all the grandeur of God's creation, and I go, you know what? If something were to happen to this plane... I'm done. There is no hope that I'm going to hit the ground and I'm going to make it, right? You hear about those stories about skydivers? Yeah, they're falling from lower elevations than 30,000 feet. Yeah, I'm probably going to suffocate even before I hit the ground. And in those brief moments of reality, I realize, you know what? Apart from the security and safety of this airplane and that pilot's ability to fly this thing, I'm done. I'm toast. Now think about that. That is what it felt like to be in the Old Covenant. God said, obey, and you will be blessed. And every man and every woman who lived what? Knew. Apart from the security of God's mercy, I'm toast. I'm done. There's no way I can survive on my own should God choose to take away his mercy. Now, one of the things that um, accompanied the Old Testament and the Hebrew um, covenants was a visual aid. Okay? They would use visual aids, much like we do today, to symbolize what's going on. And so for covenants, covenants were so significant and so binding that there would almost always be blood associated with it symbolically. They would slaughter animals or butcher animals, not like the pagans did for superstitious reasons, but for symbolic reasons to say one thing. If, here's what they were trying to communicate whenever they would, would utilize blood in the covenant. They would say this, should I ever break my end of this deal, let what happened to that animal happen to me. Matter of fact, some of them were so vivid when the covenants were so significant, they would slaughter an animal and literally cut the animal in half and spread it apart. And the two people making the covenant would join hands or lock arms and walk between the two halves through the blood. What were they saying? Should we ever break this covenant and split this deal, may what happened to these animals happen to us. This is why in the marriage vow we say what? Till death do we part. Covenants were a big deal for the Hebrew nation and an even bigger deal when God gets involved and makes them with his people. And so look at this. This is Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Verse 7 says this. We'll put this on the screen. Then he took the book of the covenant. So Moses is taking the book of the covenant, your old, the first five books of your Old Testament. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people so he's reading this, reminding them of this covenant God made. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will what? Do. And we will be what? Obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on all the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You realize what just happened in that moment? So Moses has come down from the mountain. He's received the commandments and the law and how to set up the... And this is all the covenant God made. And he reads it fresh before the people. They slaughter an animal. He takes the blood and he throws it, sprinkles it, and throws it out over the crowd. What is he saying? If any of us ever breaks this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to us. Did you hear what they said? 
All that the Lord has spoken, we will what? Do, and we will be obedient. Talk about making a promise you can't keep. I mean, their intentions were good, right? Who doesn't want to be blessed? We're in. What does it take? Obey? Okay, we'll obey. How many times have you been there? I'll do it this time, God. I really will. I'll obey you this time. I'll get it right. I'll do it. And if you're in that mindset that in order to make God happy or invoke his favor to be blessed, i got to get this down. I've got to make a promise and I've got to keep it. You're operating in the old covenant, the old system. And the problem is you and I are just as good as if we jumped out of an airplane at 30,000 feet at keeping our promises when we make them to God. We are prone to wonder. We are bent towards rebellion. Every day we are tempted to trust our own reason, our own logic over the logic and the wisdom of God. It's interesting because you get to the New Testament, you get all the way to the end. The Apostle Peter writes some letters, and in 1 Peter 2, um, this is beautiful. He talks about the promises we now have in Christ. And look at what he says about those who believe in Jesus. This is 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. He says, To those who believe, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Only, or excuse me, once you had not received mercy, but now what? Now you have received mercy. And so there's a new covenant here, a new promise. The old one was what? Obey and you'll be blessed. What's the new one? Believe. Believe and you will be blessed. Now let's look at verse 7 together. 7 is an interesting verse. Some people will read 7 and all of a sudden want to throw out the Old Testament. Read verse 7 with me. For if that first covenant, your Old Testament, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So some people will read that verse out of context and go, see, look, the Old Testament had fault in it. It did have fault in it. The Old Covenant had fault in it. But guess where the fault was? Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them. Here's the flaw in the Old Testament promises God made. Us. Right? The problem wasn't God's. The problem wasn't that God couldn't keep his promises. The problem was that we couldn't keep our end of the deal. And so the fault in the old covenant, the old promise was what? Our rebellion. Our propensity to do what we want to do despite God. Our propensity to say, you know what? I think I'll live life the way I want to live it. For he finds fault with them. When he says, and now what he's going to do is he's going to quote Jeremiah. So I want you to think this way with me. Go back and think of this visually. Genesis 2, God makes a covenant with Adam. Into Genesis 6 through 8, into 9, God makes a covenant with Noah. Genesis 12, Abraham. Exodus, he makes a covenant promise with Moses. And then we get David, 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to rise up a king and a kingdom from your descendants. So we've got these promises God makes. But then in Jeremiah, before we get to the New Testament, God begins to speak of a better promise that's coming. So even while the old promises were enacted and the people were operating, God was saying, guess what? There's a better promise coming. Listen to this from Jeremiah. This is an Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 30, 31, which is what Hebrews 8 quotes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. There's going to be something different about this new covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they, what? Broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now this beautiful imagery of bride and groom is all throughout your Bible. Um, Specifically uh, Hosea. God uses a prophet Hosea and this prostitute wife of his to illustrate his love for his people. Tells Hosea to go, pur- to go purchase a wife out of prostitution to reflect how God's love for us, right, comes and finds us in the midst of our rebellion and our unfaithfulness. And then when the prostitute goes back and leaves Hosea, God says, go once again and make her your wife. God's doing what? He's illustrating his love for his people. He's the perfect husband loving an unfaithful wife, us. So all throughout the Old Testament, you get this imagery of a faithful husband, a loving husband, loving his wife who is unfaithful And so that's what Jeremiah is talking about here when he says that, even though God was a husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here's going to be the difference. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So instead of writing it on stone tablets and placing it in a temple, there's going to be something very personal about the way God interacts with us in regards to the law. He's going to put it on our hearts. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now listen to this. So instead of the Old Testament, if you wanted to get to know God and you were a peasant like me, yeah, you weren't super, super spiritual Moses or a prophet or a priest, you didn't really know God. You just knew about him. And so if you wanted to know who God was, you had to spend time with somebody who knew him. So you go to the temple, you would hear one of the priests speak. You'd go out into the public square and listen to Moses speak, and you would get to, go, get to know God through a mediator. Something's going to be different about this new promise, though. God is going to write the law, not on stone tablets for Moses, but on the hearts of his people. And no longer will there be a need for you to go to your neighbor and say, let me tell you about who God is. You can instead say, let me invite you to come get to know him yourself. This beautiful, intimate relationship between God and his people. No mediators needed anymore. No prophets, no priests, no mediators. Look at what he says. So each one, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How is that going to work? Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to forgive their sins, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So not only is he talking about all ethnicities, all social classes, all classes of sinners, if you want to go that route. There isn't somebody so desperate, depraved, and dark, and sinful that they can't be a part of this promise. Everybody's included, from the least to the greatest in this new promise. That's different from the old promise, right? Because only the super spiritual had any shot at all. And even then, it was like jumping out of a plane at 30,000 feet, right? So for the the commoners like us, we wouldn't even get on board the plane. There's not a chance in the world we're going to make it at making God happy with our obedience, this new covenant will be different because God will in it forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Now, we're going to go to verse uh, 10 in Hebrews 8. And we're going to finish out the chapter and then we're going to talk about it. And there should be a question beginning to emerge in your hearts. Well, what about the men and women of the Old Testament then? Right? Do we expect to see any of them in heaven? I mean, if our promise is so much better than their promise, what about Abraham? What about his wife Sarah? What about David? And, right? What about all the people, men and women, who the Bible talks about is men and women of God. 
This is what's going to get beautiful in just a minute. But let's start with verse 10. For this is the covenant, and he's quoting again Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Sound familiar? Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We'll come back to that. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, here's what we need to understand about the old covenant. It was permanent and it was binding until it was fulfilled. And the only way you and I could, there was only two ways you and I or I could fulfill our end of the deal. One, live perfectly righteous with zero sin. I mean, not even a, not even a malintention. I'm out, right? Anybody else? We're all out on that, that route. What's the other route? Then the only other route was to offer, to offer a sacrifice that was credible and qualified to pay for our sins. Here's the problem. I'm not qualified to pay for my own sins. I'm not righteous enough. Do I deserve to die for my rebellion against God? Absolutely. But that wouldn't be enough. And so then we look around and go, well, who are we going to count on to do it for us? The blood of the bulls and the sheep and the rams, that wasn't working. So who do we know who's super holy and spiritual who could die for our sins? Here's the problem. No one. Nobody's qualified to pay for the sins of man. It's why we needed a perfect sacrifice. And so here's what God does, right? So he's got two options. He, can, he can't do this, but one option would be to walk away, just pretend like he didn't make the promise. What's the problem with that? His character won't allow him to do that. He's perfectly righteous and just. He must fulfill the promise. The promise is somebody has to pay for sin. So what does he do? He sends his son as a perfect sacrifice. And so what you see in Jesus at the cross is God fulfilling the old covenant. Matter of fact, what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. What is he saying? I'm not coming to do away with the old covenant. What, what is he going to say? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Jesus says. I've come to fulfill your obligation that God made with you in the old covenant. Remember how you said, we'll obey, and you didn't? Jesus says, tell you what, I'll obey on your behalf. Remember how you said, we'll perform, God, and we'll impress you with our good deeds, and then you didn't? Jesus says, I'm going to come and perform on your behalf. And then remember how God said when you mess up, offer a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, and it'll take away your sins, but you couldn't find one, Jesus says, I'll be that for you. I'll go the distance. I'll go to the cross. I will die for you. And so what we see on the cross is really the overlapping of two covenants. The old one is being fulfilled, and the new one is being inaugurated. Now, there's something much more beautiful happening here, right? So what about the men and women of the Old Testament? When you go to Galatians 4, Paul, with no mistake, says this, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in you the nations will be blessed. You know, what that, you know what that tells us? That all the way back at the beginning of your Old Testament, God was also promising the gospel. And so when you get to Hebrews 11, the men and women of the Old Testament are going to be listed. You know how they get into heaven? By obedience? Nope. By faith. 
So while we see Abraham, you know what the first thing he does when God makes a promise with him in Genesis 12? The first thing he does, he packs up his stuff. He looks like a faithful believer. The very next thing he does is he lies about his wife because he's scared that God won't keep his end of the deal. So Abraham doesn't make it to heaven based on his performance to obey. He makes it based on believing God's promises. So even in those Old Testament promises, the men and women believed God. They were believing the coming promise of the gospel. So instead of what? Obey and you'll be blessed. What does the new promise say? Believe and you will be blessed. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he, um, he sits down with his disciples and he has this beautiful dinner which we call the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And it's from here we do, we practice our uh, communion. Our ordinance of communion comes from here. So Jesus sits down with his guys I mean, he's getting ready to be betrayed and arrested. And we know it's on his mind because he tells them, one of you is about to betray me. This is about to go down. I'm getting ready to go down the cross for you. Last supper. And he passes around the bread. and He says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. You may be familiar with this passage. And then in, this is Matthew 26, in verse 28, when he passes the cup around, look at what he says to them. For this cup, it represents, this cup is my blood of what? The covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so at the cross, we see both promises come together. Jesus pays for the old one, and he opens up a new one of mercy and grace for those who would believe. The old covenant, obey, and you'll be blessed. The new covenant, believe, and you'll be blessed. The old covenant, disobey, and you'll be cursed. The new covenant, believe, and you'll be forgiven. The old covenant, disobey, and you'll be abandoned. The new covenant, believe, and you'll be accepted. The old covenant, disobey, and you'll be called not my people. New covenant, believe, and you'll be adopted into the family of God. The old covenant, disobey, and live in insecurity, constant doubt, constant shame, constantly trying to earn your way into God's presence and his favor and impress him. The new promise, what? Believe and you'll be secure in Jesus. You see how still to this day we're still trying to operate in the old covenant? Wear the right clothes, listen to the right radio stations, do all the right moral things, and somehow, hopefully, at the end of my life, God will say, uh, you did enough to come in. Yeah, that's about like jumping out of a plane at 30,000 feet and expecting to land on your feet and survive. It's impossible. It's impossible for you and I to impress God. The best among us, impossible. We're so prone to do that, aren't we? And Jesus says, quit operating in the old covenant. I've brought a new one, a better one. It's more excellent. The old one was good. It's a backdrop to the new one. It helps us understand, right, the significance of the sacrifice and the, and the joy to be had in knowing God. And, 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 right, and it, it amplifies this new one. But Jesus says, we're done with that one. I already fulfilled it. I did it. I fulfilled it for you. Now all you must do is believe. I'm so excited that you're here today. We're going to witness um, something really exciting today. Um, five, I believe, uh, five of our teenagers um, are coming before you today to say, I believe and I trust Jesus. I'm taking him at his word that he's the son of God and he died for my sins. And in him I find love and mercy and purpose and identity and security. I'm staking everything on him. And they're going to make that known to you by the symbolic expression of baptism here in a few minutes. But I just want to say this. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, 
you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that God has made you a promise and it's on the table right now. It is, right now. You didn't have to wear the right clothes. You didn't have to put on your church clothes. You don't have to go to the right church or have the right lingo. All you must do, take him at his word and believe and you will be saved. That's it. Believe that he is the son of the living God and he has died for your sins and resurrected from the grave to give you eternal life. That promise is on the table for you and I today. I'm gonna pray for us now as our worship team comes back up for just a time of reflection. And if that's you today and you wanna make that commitment, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I'm gonna lead you in a prayer that if you pray your own words in your own heart, um, you could follow me in this if you'd like. Um, This is what it means to approach God and to find the mercy and grace that he's offering. Let's pray together. Um, Most holy God, we're so excited and so thankful and so moved that you are the promise keeper. And no one else in human history has ever been a promise keeper like you. And so today, we simply want to come to you and believe the promises that you have made. That by believing, by faith, that we can find love and security and identity and mercy and forgiveness and grace and eternity. Right now, God, we choose to believe. To believe that your son Jesus is the son of the living God and he has died for us to fulfill the old covenant and to open up the new one. And today we believe. As we get prepared to to stand and sing, I just want to encourage you today, if you are a Christian, that today you would dig deep into the wells of grace and mercy and look at the ways that God has loved you so well. And that rather than singing songs, you and I would truly worship. We would adore and exalt the name of Jesus and the amazing sacrifice that he has paid on our behalf. When you're ready, let's all stand and sing together.